Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast, the only podcast where you bring 14 games to a game day with only an 8% chance of playing more than one of them. I'm Mark Teske, your host for the day, along with my co-host, my millennial friend, Mr. Jake Kloppenstein. Jake, how are you today? I'm doing wonderfully. However, I do have to take some offense here, Mark. I do not bring that? as many games to game day as you do. That is correct. Mark has this giant, this giant bag. What'd you call it? The ultimate games bag? What was the Oh, name the ultimate company? gaming backpack. It's great. It's cool, <laughs> I love but it. I bring a small little bag. It is the, from Game Night. I think it's on Amazon. If you search game bag on Amazon, you'll be able to pull it up, but it only holds like two or three games. So I'm not bringing my entire shelf, Mark. It's only you who wants to kill your back. I know it's opportunity, though. I really don't ever want to be in a situation like we had a couple weeks ago where we needed a 15 minute game that played five players and I didn't have one. So thus, I bring too many games along. But if you want to see an awesome backpack, the Geek On Ultimate Board Game Backpack, I kickstarted this thing a year ago and it just got delivered about a month ago and it's awesome. It is pretty cool. I'm pretty jealous. For those of you who don't know at home, we play every week at Fantasy Flight Games up in Roseville, Minnesota, and we never actually played anyone's house really for the most part. Not so much, although we did this week. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. We played so many games this week, so we always bring games. It's, it's weird. We're one of the weirdos who bring games everywhere. My games always leave the house. We're going to carry that one forward to you because really this is going to be the world's longest games we played this week episode because we played some stuff that we were dying to talk about. So we decided that we were going to do an entire episode on games we played this week and what we thought of them. Absolutely. Why don't we start it off with Crusaders that will be done. Um, I talked about hey, uh, Jake, 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 Jake. You forgot to remind me of the thing that you were supposed to remind me about. Oh. What's that thing? Twitter. We have Twitter now. I hate Twitter. <laughs> we are on Twitter. I know, a little late to the party on this one. I've actually had Twitter since, like, way back, way back, way back, and haven't used it in years. But we were informed that it might be a good idea for the gaming moguls to have a Twitter account. So we have one, and it is gaming moguls. Easy. For the most part, I think it'll just be cross-posted Instagram posts, because we both like Instagram a lot. Yep. We like to post on there. But we will be on Twitter. Reach out to us one of the eight ways you can find us, and I promise we'll respond. For sure. And if you see something that we put up there that you like, uh, do us a solid and retweet us. That'd be awesome. Cool. Well, now that we took our uh, brief little break, can we talk about games, yes. actually? Let's do it. Got it. So Crusaders, they will be done. It's a Kickstarted game. Um, it's designed by Seth Jaffe, who did Eminent Domain. We talked about it briefly last week for being very overproduced and coming with small plastic miniatures as well as wooden components. Um, Mark and I much prefer the wooden components in the game, and we actually were able to play it as the last game we played on Wednesday this past week. What'd you think of it, Mark? Yeah, you know, I had heard some things before as this thing was coming out. The, the theme was a bit controversial about, you know, the Crusaders weren't exactly a really awesome point in world history. So I didn't know what to think about this one coming in. But first impressions... Holy cow. Absolutely amazing production, as in with everything that TMG does with their Deluxified Editions. It's really beautiful. Second opinion, the thing plays just glassy smooth and short. Yeah. So it was, I'll let you tell a little bit more about what the game's about, but just initial impressions, I thought it was really fun to play. Right. Some of the controversy was regarding the fact that the game does not actually really evoke crusading. You're more or less wandering around putting down houses in different locations. And it does try to yeah, convey like yeah. banking, which I, I believe the Crusades. Settlers of Catan. Yeah, but I mean, this could be really any <laughs> any theme you wanted it to be with going somewhere and taking it. I mean, hell, it could be a Western themed game. But that being said, the the actual component quality and the artwork does a very good job of showing that it is a crusading themed games. You're staring at your little guys with little wood things. 
So the gist of this game is it's a Mancala-style action selection game. So what that means is you have a little Mancala, which is those six different compartments in the top of your player screen, and you do actions on them. Each one corresponds to an action. When you take an action, you take all of the different cubes that are on that action spot and distribute them like you would in Mancala to the next ones, and the number of cubes there is your power of the action. But exactly as you said, Mark, I completely agree with you. This game is quick, and it's really pretty, and we played four-player with Teach in an hour. This is going to be easy to actually deep dive into. It's almost filler length level, or at least like, hey, we have 45 minutes before the other table plays. Hey, let's just set this up and see what happens. Yeah, it's um, it is bigger than what I would call a maxi filler. It's bigger than that, but it's smaller than a full size big box game. I think it fits in a lot the same bucket as a game like Isle of Sky or Imhotep or some of these that are roll for the galaxy more than fillers and roll for the. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yep, I'd put it in probably that same size bucket. Yep, for sure. My main worry with this game is it might not be super replayable. There's a decent amount of paths to victory, and it's pretty situational on what the board sets up as. And there's some special powers, but you can kind of do the same thing each game if you really wanted to. Right. But the other side of it, too, is I don't think this is ever going to be your cornerstone game of the night through the length and the weight of it. This is something that, hey, we already got done playing Avita Lacerda for the night and we want something a little lighter just to wind down. It really fits that spot nicely. Absolutely. Like all games, I wish the box was smaller, but yeah. I'm a fan, I own it. I wouldn't say it doesn't have any crusading theme to it. There are people that you go conquer and have to fight that get progressively tougher. So there is a uh, combat conquest flavor to it. So I wouldn't say it doesn't evoke any flavor of conquest in there, because that is one of the primary paths to moving on forward and getting victory points is by uh, winning progressive military victories as the game goes on. That's fair, but it probably could. I can think of that being a space game, a Western themed game. Heck, it could even be like a rat eradication game and you're setting up different (laughs) like mousetraps or something. There could be anything that you want to do there that is taking over some amount of area from uh, standing peoples or in one case, rodents. Yeah, you're probably right on that one. The theme is a little bit arbitrary, but, you know, I I would highly recommend it. I had a great time playing it and it's beautiful. And I I think virtually anybody you plunk this in front of is going to have a good time playing it. Right. And if anyone wants my plastic deluxified components, I will happily sell them to you. As we talked about before, we we likes us some chunky wooden bits. I do not want them. I only want the wood components. I was able to meet a promise from a couple of weeks ago. No, not the Agricola promise. I promised during our Oinkisode a few weeks ago that I was going to get a copy of Troll and I was going to play it in the near future. Troll was one of the remaining Oink titles that we didn't have. I think this now makes 19 out of 25, Jake. We're doing good. I ordered it like the day after we did our Oink recording and it came and we got a chance to play it last Wednesday night and it's fun. (laughs) Yeah, we was regrettably not me in this situation and I'm pretty, pretty envious that I didn't get to play it. It's super light and it's a filler like most Oink games are. So this one will be quite easy to pull out and play. I think Uh, the whole gist behind it is that you're a group of thieves and you're trying to sneak into a troll's den and get away with this gold without waking him up. So what everybody does is take turns putting down almost like a bet, if you will, between zero and five stones. And what you do once you get done, everybody places their bet, you order them sequentially and you then flip the trolls card over, which has a number from three up to about 15. And if you're the guy that causes it to break and go over, say, you lose points, whereas the people that got away before that get that much in stones, and the people after that just run away and don't lose or don't gain anything. 
Now, where this gets interesting is the first guy is the scout, and he actually gets to look and see what the troll is and make his bet first. So you're trying to read the guy and decide, well, he knows what this is, and he put out a five. Is he trying to push us off the cliff, or is he actually saying that this is a huge numbered troll? I don't know. The other interesting thing you can do is you can either be conservative and safe, or you can be risky. And by being risky, you actually place your bet upside down, hidden, and you put a 2x counter on it. So if you get away and you're one of the guys that gets it, you get double the gems. But if you get caught, guess what? You pay double the penalty. So it's push your luck. There's a psychological playing the players and trying to trick them into doing something that causes them to get caught and all of that wrapped into one. It was delightful. Right. And it looked just as beautiful as the other Oink game. So I'll have to get it played sometime. That was great. Pull it off your shoink. Your shelf of oink. <laughs> my shoink. That's my new favorite term. <laughs> the shoink, the shelf of oinks. Um, and we'll talk in a moment about why you weren't able to join us. And while you still weren't joining us, I was able to get another play of Gugong in with a full table of four. And um, I said last episode that I really like the game and play two has cemented that. I enjoy this one quite a bit. It's solidly in mid Euro territory. And I think it's something that if you like games like uh, Great Western Trail or something like that, I can see that you will most likely like this one as well. What I really think is interesting about it on subsequent plays is the mechanism of gift giving. Its core mechanism is that you have cards on it that have a number of zero through nine, one through nine, zero through nine. Don't remember. Anyway, um, you have to give a gift to that location that's better than the gift that's there. So if there's a five there, you have to put out a six or better. If you don't have a better gift, then you have to actually make up for it by giving two gifts or you have to send some of your servants to go work for him in order to make it a a good gift. And if you successfully given a better gift, then you get to do that action and you get to decide, do I do it at a low level, kind of a freebie version of it? Or do I get to commit some of my counters, their servants, actually, in order to take a higher powered version of that action? Makes for some interesting tactical decisions in that you may have planned out what you're going to do and the guy before you takes that action and changes the number on you. So you had, you know, you're sitting there with a five ready to play it down on the Great Wall. Then the dude in front of you goes down and plays a seven on there and now no longer your card does not work anymore. So you either have to spend extra servants or extra cards or you just got to pivot and do something different on that turn. So that's an interesting tactical choice on there. Everybody that we played with enjoyed it quite a bit, and I think this is one that's going to come out fairly often. Cool. Yeah, I'm hoping I actually get to play it. It's a beautiful game. That's all I really know about it. Yeah, pretty quick teach, too, after I've had a chance to play it a few times. I think it's one that I could get a newbie player up and running in well, under 15 minutes, I would think, on that. So it's a it's about a two, two and a half hour game, I would think, and with a 15 minute, including a 15 minute teach. So oh, that's great. That's that, that that that's a good chunk. That's awesome. Yep. It's a great fit for virtually any game night. So so the next game we're going to talk about, I have always thought was really interesting. So we play, as I said earlier, at Fantasy Flight Games Event Center up in Roseville, Minnesota every Wednesday. <laughs> they have these little yep. light boxes to decorate the game space, and it was all of their kind of old games. So Mm -hmm. there's one that is like Game of Thrones themed and I knew all of them, but one of them I never knew. And and we're talking about these are these are like when Christian Peterson was still a designer way, way, way back when these were 15 years ago. Right. Like one is Dust Tactics, like their Dust game they were making a while ago that that I, 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 I haven't heard about in years. But one of them has this really cool it almost is snoopy looking artwork of. Yeah, that's a a good man, a man in a like a dive bombing spaceship. And I've always wondered what game it was. And turns out 
It's Magblast, which I came over <laughs> right as I'd finished my game, which we're about to talk about after this game. I saw you guys playing this. I'm like, holy crap, that's right there. That's right on the wall. I've been staring at this for four years. I didn't know what game that was. All right, so backstory. One of the very, very first games I played with uh, some of my buddies, the Maximum Overdrive guys back in the day, was Magblast. It's the game of screaming space battles where you have a car- uh, central cruiser and you have to put ships around the outside and defend your flanks. And it's written right in the rules that when you shoot somebody, you have to make a shooting noise or else the shot misses automatically. So you literally have to go pew, pew, pew in order to make the shot hit. That's hilarious. And funny part about this game is I've never I've owned it for 15 years and um, we didn't play my copy there. We played the shelf copy at Fantasy Flight because obviously that's not one that makes its way into my game bag very often. But we needed a 15 minute filler and I just went mag blast. Let's do this. And, um, oh, it did not stand the test of time. Holy Toledo. <laughs> oh, God. You guys just we got stopped. A little backstory. I've never, this is the first time I've ever actually played the game. What happened in the past is I'd bring it to game nights and everybody knew that since I owned the game, they would just play or eliminate me in the first 30 seconds. I mean, this one has the worst witch's brew of player elimination plus take that all rolled into one. I mean, it is literally munchkin in space. And oh I didn't God. realize that until this Wednesday. It's Munchkin in space. So oh, this is the first time I didn't get eliminated almost on the spot. So I actually got to play this out. Well, the problem is it's settled into that Munchkin theme of, you know, 30 minutes of fun packed into two hours. It was going down that path really fast where neither one of us was killing each other. Neither one of us was getting ahead. There was just an awful lot of take that going on. And finally, Brent and I looked at each other and went, you done? And I went, yeah, I'm done. Let's let's pull the plug on this one and move on. So mag blast, hard pass, but nostalgia. So I guess there's something. Yeah, it was. Yeah. And we got to figure out the wall art. That's good. I consider yeah. that a win. I'm glad I pulled it off. So I and played it one more time. So I don't ever actually have to play it again. <laughs> yeah. And so after the after mag blast, we were actually able to get in the game of Crusaders that will be done. So I was happy you guys decided to quit because I had just wrapped up my game of 1846 and I was sitting there whittling my thumbs hoping you guys were going to finish up soon jake did you just say 1846 i think i did so that's the other game we played this week that i'd like to talk about so 1846 1846 is designed by tom lehman and the goal of it is it is where the east coast train companies are trying to go to the west and this is the geographical region from eastern ohio to chicago pretty much and then all the way down south and it's literally called the race for the midwest correct? exactly that's that's the the, the right, like fun right. nomenclature after the just four numbers it was really good so this one has it's a little polarizing maybe polarizing is not the right term but it's a little divisive it's by far yeah. the most like, commercially like everybody available likes game. it for yeah. the most part. yeah for sure but it's the most commercially available game right it is mass market published by gmt games and other than that, there's 1830, which is getting a reprint that's supposed to release sometime this quarter. Those are like the only really easily accessible 18xx games from a purchasing standpoint. Those are the two of the three 18xx games that you're likely to find on, on shelves. We'll talk about the third one a bit later today, but right. Absolutely. Um, and then that has to be very special shelves. But I had my first time playing with a, a good friend of mine who recently moved up to the cities and they've been coming to game nights and they have loved every single economic game I've thrown at them. So it's like, hey. How about we try out the big daddy of all economic games and I'll teach you 18xx the system. And then every time we play an 18xx, you'll know. I've heard this one toted as one of the best teaching games, 1846, but I don't know if I agree with that. Now, 
my friend Eric did an excellent job with learning it. I mean, he he has picked up games incredibly fast, and maybe it's because I'm just the best teacher. I don't know. But 1846 is a weird game. <laughs> Jake. What? We know the answer to that one. About what? Me being the best teacher? Uh-huh. I'm not the best teacher. Klondike Rush would like to have a word with you. Yeah. I'm, I'm joking. Jake's an awesome teacher, but we both have some epic fails. I've taught 1846, I think now four or five times to newbies. I mean, I've played it more than that, but I've at least taught it to newbies four or five times. But it went well-ish. So 18xx as a system has a lot of shared rules. In 1846, there's a lot of weird things that are going on that aren't super weird. Like they're not completely breaking the fun fundamentals of the game. But the way that incremental capitalization works, the way that, well, in this game, it's not really that weird, but it's just an in-cap game. But the way that you can sell your own shares as a company for one tier less, the fact that every single trackway has a cost and every trackway is really finicky for upgrades, for prices with the tunnels and the bridges. I don't know if this game was really that much of a good teaching game. Yeah, I, th I think people confuse um, easy to get and cheap as a good first game. Yeah. And I don't think it's a bad first game, mind you. I mean, it's definitely not one of the bigger, hairier 18xx's, but it's also definitely not one of the easier 18xx's either. Right. So I think that moving forward, now that I think Mark's going to make me a wonderful copy of 1889, that'll be my go-to teaching game. I just think it presents learner ideas better than 1846 does. I think 1846 does a great job of avoiding the inaugural waterfall auction. What you instead do is you actually draft the cards to figure out which one you're going to get, which works out a little bit better. And I will say that with the two track lays, you can, the board's filled up like that. It's incredibly fast. Right. I, I don't know. I still think 89 will be better. Sure. You know, I heard a discussion today go on that uh, I thought was extremely interesting about what is the best 18xx teaching game? Is it 46? Is it 89? Is it 1830? And all of them have pros and cons, but the best idea I heard out of that one is actually the ability to, oh, I think you have to throw 18 Chesapeake in that bunch also. Um, heck, we've both taught 1849 to beginners, and you've taught 1861 to beginners. So right. plainly, there's a lot of different ways to uh, skin that cat. But the idea that I heard that I actually think is really good is to run it up until somewhere in the green phase, right, to where the two trains are out when the fours come out, and then stop run it back and reset. Because at that point, you've sort of seen what the game has to offer and how it kicks off and can make intelligent decisions to actually play. And I think regardless of what title you have, using that, uh, hey, let's stop and run it back for real now after a, a quick couple of quick early rounds is maybe the best way to teach 18xx. Right. And I think 1889 does probably the best job of presenting you with that opportunity. I don't know how in 1861, which is Russia, there's a bunch of small companies that merge together to form bigger companies is kind of the big interesting thing about that game. I don't know when you do it till. Would you do it until the Russian comes for the first round? That's like kind of late in the game. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know that it maps out super well on that one. 1861 is a bit of an anomaly for the other games because the stock market is a very key component of most 18xx games. It's not really as important in 1861. It's a very, very operational train game. And hey, I mean, beginners love running trains. So that's why we found that 1861 works so well is because beginners love running trains. They like laying train tracks. They like visiting cities. They like making money. And the stock thing's a little bit more of a growth opportunity for them. So that's why that works well. But I don't know that it maps out super well to a train right. rush because, yeah. Well, Andy, it comes, with a, it comes with a tactile goal. Okay, when someone buys this first four train, any company that you have that doesn't have a three train is going to die. 
You need to make yep. every effort you can to get all your companies set up in a way so they won't die or you can merge them or whatever. You know, that might be an interesting way of presenting 18xx. Instead of saying this game is all about having the most money at the end, and it really is. I mean, anytime you talk to somebody about, hey, this goal of life is to have the most money at the end. Some people are going to invest that money and take risks. Other people are going to buy lottery tickets. Other people are going to stuff it in their mattress. Right. And stuffing it in your mattress is fatal in 18xx across the board. So rather than presenting it on this, you know, retirement and death off in the future and having the most money thing, what you should really almost maybe put it as is, hey, your whole goal is to screw somebody out of trains. Right. So if you buy trains and you take them away from them, you're automatically putting ankle cuffs around them with a big cannonball attached on a chain to their entire plan that they're not going to be able to shake off. And that's your goal. And then gradually introduce them more goals. So refocusing them on that, hey, you want to push the trains. You want to have them put everybody else in a difficult situation. And you know what? Stuffing money in your mattress does not put another player in a difficult situation. Right. Absolutely. I also do need to bring an embarrassing thing up to you, Mark. Hit me. So we've played a lot of 18xx games. They're probably not my most played games, but they're up there. I got confused. And so I'm running the game with one player who's played a couple of times and one player is completely new at the game. And it's a three player game. And in most 18xx games, the trains rust when the times two train comes out. So if you have a two train, that train's usually going to rust when a four train spot. That's not the yep. case in 46. They rust oh, on weird. the fives. They don't rust on the fours. Twos are safes. Then you get into threes. And then, then the, the three fours, they're double-sided. And then <laughs> and then they actually go with the five, six. And all of a sudden, they were looking at the card, and they're like, why does it say brown rusts or brown uh, obsoletes? I can't remember what the heck they cost. call it in that game. But yeah, it was just completely <laughs> And I was like, oh, God, I'm such a fool. And it thankfully didn't change anything. And we were able to make sure and back up half a turn. And it was no big deal, but God, I was such a fool. I was like, yep, those are gone. And they always just die when it's times two. So make sure to read the board because <laughs> it says it right in that little box. Ugh. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I need to play that again. It's been way too long on that game. It's been probably a year since I've played 1846 and I own a copy of it. So I would like to play that one again soon. It's fast, especially with people that know. I mean, we can get that game played like that any Wednesday. Sitting at the next table, the funny one that always kept tripping me out on that one is the fact that that one has the chunkiest, fattest tiles on it. Yeah, (laughs) you know, when you have a gray city that doesn't get upgraded, it has no tile on it. So it looks like there's just this big hole in the middle of the map that like something's missing at. And I kept looking at there going, wow, why is that city missing? And oh, yeah, that's right. It's gray. And all the other tiles are super fat. Right. No, I remember originally coming to 18xx games as a hero player and hearing people say things about 1846 like it's just so beautiful. The production quality is incredible. I was like, it's just tiles. You know, the art design isn't that great. It's just a yellow field and you have yellow tiles. It's not that pretty. (laughs) Now, after playing a bunch of print and plays, which your print and plays are beautiful. But oh, my God, I found myself just looking at the thickness of the tiles being like, wow, that's that's exquisite. <laughs> yeah. I'm fully in I forgot Mark. they were thick. I opened up my copy of 1846. And I was like, whoa, dude, they're huge. <laughs> I forgot about that. They're yeah. Huge. So that wasn't the only 18xx-ish game we got a chance to play this <laughs> week <laughs> on the topic of teaching games or not. That's kind of one of our sub themes of this one. Teaching game or not. We finally got a chance to get Jake through 18 Lilliput by Lonnie Orgler. Finally. Finally. I know we've talked about this one for weeks now. I've played it a couple of times before now. And we set up a game night Friday night and just said, you know what? We're going to get a group of people together and we're going to knock out some of these games on our wish list so that we can actually talk about them. 
And 18 Lilliput was the first one of those games that we got to play on Friday night. So a little bit of background on 18 Lilliput. Jake, you want to tell everybody what it's about? This game was done by a Kickstarter. I'm just going to say that to start. Done by Lonnie Orgler, which is a designer of a myriad of 18xx games that are in the 18xx verse. He did, I believe, 1844 and 54. He also did 1880. He also did 18CZ. Um, He's made a whole bunch of these things. I think he even did 18 Australia. He's made a whole bunch of these games. The Kickstarter hit and it was first he did 18CZ, which was a couple of years ago, and he did that for the Czech Republic. And then he said, "Okay, cool. There's a Kickstarter liking for this. He's going to make an 18xx card game. And so this is the, the description of it says the following. It's the world of railroads in a proverbial small country. It's the world of 18xx games in a short game in between. The English in this is not the best written in the world. But the gist of this game is it's 18xx the card game. You are using action selection to manage your companies, to lay down new different cities, and the the board is actually not starting as a board. You actually are laying down cards to make the board and the map, and yeah, it's been great. I've said the joke about six times now, but let's make it seven. It's the closest to scale 18xx <laughs> game, and I love it. Right. <laughs> Lilliput being uh, from the world of Gulliver's Travels, yes. where... Everything is about miniature people and this whole miniature world. Right. And it comes in a miniature box. You know, it's a nice, cute little small box game. And it's all cards that you put out. There's no board. You lay the board out in real time following the checkerboard rule, meaning that you have to essentially every other tie, every other card lay down straight track or curve track. You can't have city next to city next to city. What's really, really different about this game is that it dispenses with the whole idea of the tick-tock of stock rounds and operating rounds like every other 18xx game has. This one has a Euro backbone behind it. What it has done is it's taken an action selection game. Think Puerto Rico, right, where you you select an action and you get to do that thing. But no one gets to follow, so not Puerto Rico. Okay, fair enough. Any other action selection game. Yes. Yeah, you select an action, you do that thing. The next person selects an action, you do that thing. It's also limited by number of rounds. So over the course of the game, uh, over eight rounds, you get to do 16 actions. And those 16 actions include everything that you're going to do in the game. It includes buying your shares of stock. It includes selling your shares of stock. It includes laying track. It includes buying train engines. It includes laying tokens. And then it includes a few alternate things that you can do. And that's your entire game gets to play out in those right. 16. Aside actions. from running your train to generate revenue, which every company is going to do at the end of the round, that's the whole game. Yep. And what's interesting is that normally in 18xx, the most valuable, rarest commodity are either money or trains. They're probably abstracted one way or another. In this one, it's actually time. And I think that's a fascinating twist on the game where the rarest thing you have is an action. Mm -hmm. And you have to really plan very efficiently on how you're going to use those actions and in what order to get maximum benefit. Right. And I think that's a really interesting puzzle on top of doing the other 18xx, you know, grow shares and run train companies. Coming from a Euro background, I really liked this because... It was a language that I'm used to speaking. I speak mostly European style efficiency engine games, and I was able to see certain things. So one thing that's really cool is you keep on trying to figure out ways to condense actions because all you have, as Mark said, is 16 actions. So if you start a company at one point in time, you may not have an opportunity to buy a train until later. So you have to time and game when you're going to start a company when the train pool is most ripe for the taking. 
And for 18xx people, that probably sounds really weird. At the end of every round, a train is exported and every train that rusts goes to this little buying train pool. And whenever you start a company, you can buy any number of trains from that train pool. But yeah, I thought it was great. You're trying to really maximize and really make so every single action is your best action. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I do have some complaints about this game. (laughs) One of the things with the action being I wanted to math it out and I probably should. But the president shares in these games are 50 percent of the company. Yep. Every other share is 10 percent. And there's only 80 percent of the company that's available to be purchased. The other 20 percent is lost somewhere. And furthermore, the biggest issue is there is a certificate limit of only five. So you're allowed to have five pieces of paper. So if you have two president shares plus three other shares, you can have 13 shares of stock. If you have one president share and four other shares, you only have nine. And that is a well you're not climbing out of. Right. And so I think I was trying to do the math on it. But let's say you have two action opportunities. You can either A, make your route five better. Let's say you're making $20 or $200 in total. So $100 going to you. So you can make your thing $5 in in total better or $5 per share better. You go up to $250. Let's say that. Mm Mm-hmm. I am pretty sure that that makes more sense than buying more shares just to buy one share. The only reason I think you would buy a share is just because you don't want to sit on money. But if you can make your train route better, I think it just it really incentivized making the board a little better. And I'd rather have a little more stock market shenanigans be incentivized in the game with maybe having the other shares you buy be 20 percent shares. Yeah, I do think it is important to have other shares, though, because you do you do want to make sure that you are getting dividends from other people's train companies as they're running. Right. So you do need to keep the income coming in in order to be able to afford trains going forward and to be able to have enough money to start that second company. The timing of the second company I've found is super critical in this game. It might be the most critical decision of the whole game. Started too early and you're going to have be underfunded, start it too late, and you're never going to catch up. And that was the mistake that I'd made. The two times I'd played previously, I started the company too aggressively and too early and wasn't able to capitalize it high enough to afford some of the more expensive trains later on. Right. This time, I was going to slow play it, and I got caught behind the action selection eight ball and could not get that launched until the, la- until the next to the last round, and I could never catch up. Right. Finished last by a pretty fair amount. You were just a really good teacher. I won by (laughs) a little amount. Not as not as much as you lost by. But I thought that was the most interesting part of this game. And honestly, that I think you're right. I think that's the most interesting decision of the game, because I think the main reason I won is when I started my company, there was the best train currently on offer available in the market that I was able to buy right when I floated my company. So it got rid of one extra action that I think you had to take. Because you had right. to do that for the other yep. thing. The one yep. thing that did disappoint me is we didn't get to the better trains. Do you think that's just a function of how we played? I don't know. I was trying to think about that one. Uh, better trains. There's a couple of trains at the end that are that run for actually double the amount at the end. And in the last round, you actually run for double the amount anyway. So if you have one of these D trains, which runs for double in the last round, you're actually paying 4x dividends, which is uh, quite the jackpot at the end of the game. And for whatever reason, we did not get into the trains deep enough for that to ever happen. They never came out by the time the eight rounds ran out. And I think people were buying trains somewhat aggressively. I mean, I was... we were. Yeah, but what, what was happening was, is nobody was ever pushing them fast enough that trains were going obsolete so that you could trade them back in and upgrade. So yeah, I was we, train locked. Yeah, actually, tra- I was amount. incredibly train locked in this game. So that was an interesting twist. A couple of things I want to bring up now that we've talked a little bit about our playthrough and so forth. I want to talk about a few meta topics around a team Lilliput. 
for starters, there's a lot of controversy around, is this a good 18xx teaching game? And for that matter, is it a good 18xx game? Because certain aspects of that were definitely marketed as the game being that thing. Yes. So in the context of how it was marketed, let's take it from that filter. Jake, do you think that this is a good 18xx game? It's not really an 18xx game. I don't think. I mean, it doesn't Agreed. do a lot yep. of the mainstay decisions that you are able to make. Like, it's almost like a card game that's themed around 18xx. It's not themed around I, train I, running. I could not agree more. Yep, but I could not l- agree l- more. Let me just read yep. for the listeners what the marketing for this says, just so we can see. And so this is a direct snippet from the Kickstarter. And I do believe that Lonnie's first language is not English. So maybe there's a translation error or something. But he hits the point a few times. So for one, it says it takes between one and two hours. False. It is a card game that includes all of the essential elements of a classic 18xx game. Kinda. With square track tiles that players build a track network. Okay, that's fair. The action card. It goes down to say, right. For experienced 18xx players, 18 Lilliput is a short game which can be enjoyed between other train games or a good way to round off a nice evening of rail gaming. I would not do that at for, all. For And for players without any 18xx experience, 18 Lilliput is an ideal way to learn many of the mechanisms for the world of railroad games. I don't disagree with that last statement, but I do very much disagree with the previous one because. Why would you do this as the wrap-up game? It's two hours. So we had four players at the table, three of us that play 18xx very often, and then Vince, who did just fine in the game. He was has totally following along. He's, yeah. he's, he's played along. He's not as experienced as us, but he went incredibly fast. There was no holdups or anything, and it took 2.30, excluding Teach. Was that correct? Maybe three uh, yeah. with pizza. Yeah, it was probably 240, 2.45 with Teach. Right. Yeah, it's not a long game. Do not get me wrong. But as a way to be played in between, I'd reach for probably four other games that have the same exact (laughs) theme instead of this one. North American Railways, for example. Is this a great mid-length, Euro-length, mid-length Euro-length 18xx game style, 18xx themed game? Yes. It's not anything more than that, though. Right. And I think that's why people had it. It's just the expectations. Right. And I think where it actually fits in as a great teaching game, it's a great teaching game to bring Euro players to 18xx because they're the euro backbone in it it feels familiar it tastes familiar it's a great crossover for a euro player to dip a toe into the 18xx world but i really put it in a category much like castles of burgundy the card game or la granja no siesta it's 18xx the card game has a lot of the same theme a lot of the same flavor a lot of the same ideas but the core mechanism is different so i don't think it can be measured on an 18xx scale it's really its own thing And I think if you step aside from all the marketing material and just look at it in a bubble by itself, I love the game. I I think it's a lot of fun. I agree. I had a great time with it. And what's cool is as a teaching standpoint, you explain some concepts. Okay, here's how you run a train. You set up a board real quick and you say, okay, how much money is this company going to make with three different trains? Okay, now you pay it out 10%. That's pretty easy to explain. You can explain that to a lay, lay person just like that. Okay, what do you do on your turn? Because that's going to resolve at the end of every turn. You just draw a card and you can either do the top action on that card or the bottom action on that card. That's the game. Yeah, and I completely see where an 18xx player is going to look at that and go, wow, that's super limiting. But remember, for somebody that's not familiar with the system, 18xx is a little sandboxy. (laughs) Where do I start? What do I do? This one spells it out for you. Take one of the actions. Your choice. Do one of those things. Now, it may not be the right thing, but the things that you can do are all right in front of you. And I think that for my friends that are Euro players, 
that are open to playing financial games, like maybe a Brass Birmingham player. This is a great crossover for somebody that plays Brass right. Birmingham. This game's way it. lighter than Brass Birmingham. This would have a much easier time getting the strategy to the table compared to your first play of Brass Birmingham. You're still yeah, probably I, I wrestling mm-hmm. or Brass Lancaster for that matter. You're still wrestling with the mechanisms a little bit towards the end of Brass Birmingham. But in this game, it's just going to you're going to kind of know what you're doing from the get go. And that's how it was with Vince. Vince was very, very much in the game towards the end. And he hadn't played as much 18XX as me and you or John had for that matter. And he was just as good. Yeah. I do think time-wise, so yeah, I think we both agree that the 90 minutes to 120 minutes is probably hogwash. But having said that, I think that if you and I and J-Mac and Tyler or Vince or one of our other 18xx playing friends sat down right now, ran it back immediately, I definitely think we could get it done in under two hours. So that's the question. And I think this will be a more interesting follow-up down the line. There are very fast 18xx games, 18 Scandinavia. I mean, hell, we haven't played 1889 in person in a while. There's more that I'm not listing. 1836 is a very fast game. If we can get an 18xx game around two hours, maybe two to three hours, would we rather just do the whole hog, that thing, versus wasting our time? Wasting our time is a little bit of a loaded language way to explain it and ask the question, but would we rather do that versus play 18 Lilliput? I think that'll probably be the real question for the staying power of 18 Lilliput. Yeah, and I I also think the who are we playing with is probably a That's big fair one. Too. But then again, if we're playing with Euro players, we're also probably not going to hit that sub two hour bogey. Right, which is what would really make this game the next level, I think. Yeah, being able to play with a Euro player in sub two hours, that's the holy grail right there. That would be perfect. God, that plus teach. Yeah, if this game was 30 to 45 minutes shorter, it would be exactly what it set out to do. And it'd be exactly perfect. But the way it stands, I think it's just too long. And I don't really know a way that you can make it faster besides saying everybody can do their actions at the same time. But that's issues. I I don't know. Or maybe everybody can run their trains at the same time. Why do it separately? I don't know. It does actually matter because of buying out of the train pool. That Correct. is important. Yeah, that matters. Yeah. So, yeah, you can't even do it that way. You have to do it down the line. Nope. So, right. All right. So wrapping this one up, I think, you know, I would give it a full recommendation, but understand what it is going into it. Yes. I would not say for me, it'd be if someone in your gaming group owns this, that's great. If no one in your gaming group owns it, research before buying it. But definitely if someone else owns it, don't buy yourself a copy. Play theirs first and see how you think about it. Fantastic. Well, as it turns out, this was not the only game that was centered around two-inch cards that we played over the course of the weekend. Yes. <laughs> we got a chance to play High Frontier, the card game. There we did. Um, that is being mean <laughs> to this game. I think oh, Leaving Earth is, is honestly a little better than High Frontier. If I had to choose only one, it's marginal, but I think I'd choose Leaving Earth. So Leaving Earth is a card game by Joseph Fatula. We talked about it last week. I got it in a trade a couple of weeks ago, and I am absolutely enamored with this game. So we decided I've been playing with my cousin Tyler every Sunday to try to just learn a game. We've been playing this one, and we said, hey, Mark, you want to join us? And you were free, which is weird. You're usually very busy on Wednesdays. So we went over to your house, and we played for about four hours, and it was it was awesome. Yeah. Holy cow. And by the way, it was it was Sunday, Jake, not uh, Wednesday. Oh, God. (laughs) Weird. It's late. Um, (laughs) We both work on Wednesday, Jake. (laughs) So I will say for the people who do know Leaving Earth is it was my third play of the game. And I played with the Outer Planets because I bought the expansion to get the pads and because I just wanted it. And I regret playing with the Outer Planets. And I should have listened to people's recommendations to not get the Outer Planets until I'm fully bored with the Inner Planets. But that being said, you haven't actually told me how you like 
what you think about this game. I think you like it, but we left it and we were, and you kept on saying, I'm just going to we'll save it for the podcast. So, Mark, yeah, what yeah. do you think about the game? OK, so you asked me about that at the end of the game. Along the game, I'm asking him, like, Jake, this currently for sale. Jake, how much does this go for? Jake, Jake, I just thought you were doing due diligence, due diligence for the podcast, Mark. We're we're, we're research in research people. And I did say, I said, Jake, if you know me even a little tiny bit, you already know what I think of this game. And you said you love it. I know you love it. Yeah. So, okay, (laughs) I'm being coy. But what is my thought on this one? I like it better than High Frontier. Really? I did not imagine Full that. Stop. Me too. Well, I like them for I like them for different reasons, but this one twangs a nerd chord with me much more harder than High Frontier does. Okay, let's couch this one and say I like it more than High Frontier, the basic game. Correct. We haven't played the full game, so I, I don't know what that all brings. I was more interested in the problem of researching the tech tree that's built into it. There's a whole tech tree where you have to research technologies, then you have to test them and hopefully things don't blow up. Then you have to improve upon them by eliminating the bad results in a results deck so that you can get a reliable design that you can then use to do increasingly more difficult missions. And as a problem to solve, as a full card carry and flag wave and nerd, that's way cooler. Right. <laughs> I like that much more than the uh, economic game in the trappings of a space game that is High Frontier. Yeah. No slide against High Frontier. I, you know, I'm giving nine, High Frontier a 9.5. This one might be a full 10. Wow. Might be a full 10. I loved it. Loved it. Yeah. Loved I mean, loved Leaving it. Earth does such a good job of evoking the theme of being a space organization and doing the space race. So Leaving Earth says it's the conquest for the solar system, I believe is its little tagline. Sure. The conquest of the space race, something along those involves conquest, but you're different countries competing to do the space race. And I felt that in spades. I felt it offer that. um, Unbelievably so. Yeah, the missions are like get a guy into orbit, get a guy to the moon and back, Uh, send a probe to Jupiter Send a probe to survey Encladius or uh, Titan or some of Neptune's moons or whatever Which, else. Uh, by the way, I, w- I regret you're not going to see that expansion for a long, long time. It's going back in the box. <laughs> I'm only playing with the base thing from now on. We're not getting any of that crazy stuff for a while. Ugh. Yeah, mind-bogglingly difficult to figure out how to actually do that. So looking at the ratings on uh, Board Game Geek, High Frontier is 4.75, and I think they're considering all of the modules to get that 4.75, maybe. And the rating on this one is 3.75, somewhere in that ballpark. I don't know the exact number, but I would say High Frontier is rated high, and I would say this one's rated low. Very low. <laughs> it's much more difficult well, I than think there's some lurking, the rating would lead you right. to believe. I think there's some lurking variables there, especially for Leaving Earth. High Frontier wear is very difficult, and I'm excited to try the new modules, and I think it may get up there to be a 4.75. But with Leaving Earth, it's in a lot of ways, it's a solo game that's parading as a competitive game. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And the way that you actually read the rulebook, because it's not the best rulebook in the world, it's probably the most lacking component in the box. But there's a very formulaic way to describe how you actually do the steps to get things. So just to paint a picture, there's a bunch of two-inch cards that give different locations. So it's like Earth, and then above Earth, it's like subspace orbital or whatever. And then above that, it's Earth orbit. And then you can go to like moon or like inner planet point, whatever. There's a whole bunch of different cards that say different regions. Whenever you leave from one card to go to the next card, you have to do a burn or do a maneuver is what they technically call it. You need to get rid of some cards that will give you enough thrust to actually go in between that. But what's interesting is let's say you're doing what I did when we played and sending a man to the moon and back. 
you need to bring all the way down to the moon with you unless you're planning to meet up and join up later all of the rocket fuel that's going to take to leave lunar orbit and bring yourself all the way to the point at which you can drop into the gravity well of earth so you need yeah. to figure out imagine, that payload yeah, yeah go ahead mark imagine you're leaving earth with a tractor tire on your car and you want to burn rubber the whole way to the moon. So the idea is that when you get to the moon, you're down to the rims. Right. And you're doing that with rocket parts is really what you want to do. You want to leave it all behind on the way up there. And that's the most efficient way to get there. You want to use one booster to drop off so that you reduce your weight and your fuel to do a second booster. They call this staging in the real world. And it's the most efficient way to do things. Single stage to orbit, basically taking a giant rocket and going all the way into orbit with that is super, super, super inefficient because of the amount of weight the rocket weighs along with the amount of fuel needed to do that. Nobody ever does it that way because it's so terrible. What we've done instead is we have different stages. You have one stage go up, it drops off, then another one kicks in and pushes you higher, and that drops off, then another one kicks in and pushes you higher. Right. This does an almost magical recreation of that right. one. So and circling you can back. go straight to orbit right. in single stage. You can basically strap four Saturn Vs together and try to go to orbit with your full payload. But that's prohibitively expensive and difficult and take a bunch of turns to do. Whereas it's a hundred times easier to just take a Saturn V and put an Atlas on top of that and then put a Juno rocket on top of that to get your probe up into orbit. Way, way, way simpler. Right. And circling back to my point on why leaving Earth is better as a solo game and is probably viewed as lighter is once you read the rule book showing you how to do this and it's super formulaic, it literally comes with pads in the expansion or you can buy them with the game and I highly recommend them. There's a very formulaic way to figure out how to do it. And once you know how to do it, it's just kind of a math problem that's pretty easy arithmetic to solve. But you can't really convey that in an explanation verbal way without really showing you guys. And it, I could see it when it happened with you this game, but it happened with Tyler at the end of last game. He's like, oh. I absolutely get what I'm doing now. Think Russian dolls, right? right. The only guy that actually it's the little guy in the middle that you actually want to put on the moon, whereas you kind of keep pulling shells off the Russian doll as you get up there. So you have to start with the, the little guy at the moon and work backwards from there. Right. But then once you're thinking of that as an idea, then you actually have to think of how you actually do it as a math formulaic concept on the pad of paper. And it's really easy if you just there's literally a chapter in the book, rule book that just explains it. And you read that once and it makes sense. And honestly, the way I might teach this game now is say, OK, read this section and I'm going to walk you through it. But you're going to actually read it just so you can see the things I'm doing. I'm going to do exactly what they say to do as an example. And you're going to do it with me. And then you can actually see what you're doing because it makes complete sense. It's not that hard, but it is a little hard to grasp where it gets weird. It gets weird is that there are constraints that come along the way. The planning out on a worksheet how to get there is not that difficult. What happens is that you have areas where you need to be able to do like you have a flyby or a transfer to the outer planets or something like that. That has to be accomplished in one turn because you're doing a flyby of a planet. So you need to make sure that all of your variables are in place with your weight and your booster strength in order to be able to accomplish that mission in one turn. So working backwards from that constraint is where things start getting pretty difficult. Right. But I will say the most difficult part of this game is exactly what I think the best thing about it is. Every rocket has a thrust. Every maneuver, which is leaving from one card going to the other card, has a difficulty from zero to eight or nine. To figure out how much thrust you need is the difficulty rating of the maneuver multiplied by your mass. So let's say you're doing a three maneuver with a full weighted mass of four. I said three. So that's going to be you're going to need a thrust of at least 12. 
There's a really handy dandy chart on your player aid that shows how much a rocket can carry outside of itself on certain points with different difficulties. So, for example, if you're like looking at the Soyuz rocket at a difficulty of three, it can carry a payload of everything, excluding the mass of itself of like 13. And then you can just easily consult that and knowing your little payload formation, you figure out an excellent way to represent that concept. Yeah. And backing it up, that's why you end up with things like, okay, I want to make a single step all the way to the moon and my mass times the difficulty. 240. Oh, wait a minute. Right. (laughs) That's going to require four Saturn fours all locked together. Right. And the cost on that is going to be take me four turns to earn. Right. But then you can think, oh, there's also technologies on this tech tree, which is really a achievement tree. You can take your rocket ship up there in parts and take it up in four or five different parts and different launches and rendezvous them up in space. Man, this game's cool. But at first you have to do missions to test out rendezvous, which is exactly how it worked in the real world. They did all these baby step missions where they go up and they test to see, can we undock a rocket? Yes, we can. Does that booster work? Yes, it does. And eventually they'd get each part ironed out to the point where they could keep adding to it and eventually go to the moon. Oh, it was. Should we just rename the podcast Leaving Earth podcast? And all we do is talk about (laughs) leaving Earth. I am enthralled with this game. I have a standing hangout session with Tyler every single Sunday from now on just to play this game. It is so cool. For my family, who I know is actually going to listen to this one. This is the top item on my birthday list, fam. So reach out to Jake. I'll tell you how to buy it. It's easy. Let's do talk about our, our, our complaints. I do have a couple of thoughts. I wouldn't even call them complaints. I'd call them thoughts. No before you buy. No before you buy. This is complex. It's a great game. It's pretty crunchy. But if you love space and space kind of makes sense to you already, then you'll take to this really quickly and it'll be an amazingly fun challenge to try to figure out how to do. But there are other games out there that probably also have rich space themes that are a little easier to get your arms around. So that's probably problem number one. Problem number two, I wouldn't, again, not problem. Aspect of the game? Aspect of the game, a player interaction is somewhat low on this one. It really, like Jake said, is a single player game that has been blown out to be multiplayer. There is a bunch of goals that you are racing to get, and that really is the only touch point between each player. One thing we didn't do that we will definitely do next time is there is an aspect of the game where you can make deals with other players like, hey, I'm five bucks short. Uh, I'll give you five bucks next turn if you give me an extra five this time. And we didn't do that one. Right. Because Jake said stupidly at the beginning. This is dumb. They didn't do this in the history. The Soviets didn't send you And hilariously, I don't know if you noticed this, we did exactly what we railed on in our last podcast about co-ops, is we basically made a bunch of deals with each other. Hey, man, I'm going to do that achievement. So uh, is anybody else going to do that achievement? You're you're not? Okay, cool. I'll do that one. You do that one. I'll I'll do that one. And we won't step on each other's toes. Which probably we did exactly what we railed on. I don't want to be competitive in space. So I think that goes (laughs) to the other point that is kind of an aspect of the game that maybe you should know before you buy. I will say, Mark, we're pretty competitive. I mean, we're not mean or anything. We're both very gracious losers, both very gracious winners. And I don't think it's very off-putting. At least I've never been told that it's off-putting. Maybe it is. Here come the emails. This game probably does the least interesting idea of making you feel good for winning the game. I did not care. I won the game. I went to the moon and back. We had to call it a little early. It was a first time play game. So you guys have a chance to catch up. I did not care at all. I could have came in dead last and I wouldn't have cared at all. The journey is absolutely the reward in this game. Right. Which is probably why it's such a wonderful co-op game is you're just 
playing around with this system that's so interesting and so deep and such such a thinky little problem. It's great. But that goes into the yep. next complaint. One thing that I thought was a little weak on the game is every turn you get 25 bucks. And yep. that's the what you get to spend on patents and that's what you get to spend on rocket parts. And that number never grows ever. Nope. 25 bucks in 1953 and it's 25 bucks in 1984. And that feels a little strange to me. And also, too, okay, you buy a patent for 10 bucks, then Jake, you can buy the same patent for 10 bucks. And then Tyler can buy that patent for 10 bucks. And then what are the rocket parts? 10 buck, 10 buck, 10 buck. They're the exact same. Well, or yeah. depending on the rocket, eight for Soyuz. Every Soyuz is $8. Doesn't matter if you make it or if I make it. I would have liked to have seen a mechanism that either allows the economy to grow in some fashion. So, hey, Maybe cost of living now in 1958, I get 26 bucks. And by 1963, I get 27. I don't know. Something like that. That's one thing I'd love to see. Or first movers on the patents. Like if I'm the first one to research reentry, I get it at 10 bucks. If you're the second one to do it, you have to pay 12. Tyler's the third one. He gets to pay 14. That would have made for an interesting twist on it as right. well. Or, or maybe I earn a couple bucks. I have a patent on it. So. I earn a couple bucks if you guys do it or something like that, right. again, to help the economy grow. So, right. And that would also ramp up player interaction. Yes, exactly. So the other thing exactly. I was thinking is maybe every rocket you build is cheaper. Not a crazy amount, but even if we're just talking two bucks here and there, that'd feel like you had another aspect sure. to consider versus just, okay, you get $25, spend it. I understand that was probably made as a decision just to level out the game so you can balance every price based on that. And right. I will say... Things cost good. Like, I like that Saturn rockets are expensive. I like that you right. have to yeah, really, it a takes a sense. long time to test them. And you can kind of go really early with a whole bunch of Soyuzes, but it's really inefficient. It's great. But yeah, I agree with you. Some sort of just anything, just a nod, a hat tip just to be like, oh, well, Japan owns that patent. So it cost me an extra dollar. Or hey, they're making right. them so much more efficient than I am. Maybe I can buy it. I can talk to Tyler and buy it for nine dollars when it normally cost me 10 or some example maybe that break the game sure. and it'll take more plays to really see if that's more of a complaint that we still have the other issue too is that you know that issue of being stuck and using something uh, using the inefficient rocket is absolutely a function of the testing aspect hey uh it's more efficient to use a saturn 5 in this case but i've tested soyuz rockets so right. i'm just going to strap together four cheap soyuzes i know it's cheaper to buy one saturn but I haven't tested Saturns, so I could either waste four years testing Saturns or I could just send up four Soyuzes, which are done and ready to go. Right. And so super inefficient, but OK, I'll do it. So there is a leveling of that on should I do the more efficient thing or should I stick with the cheap right. thing that I'm good at? And I will next time before we play. And I'm sure there's probably a listener out there that knows leaving Earth better than I do is screaming something at me. I think the way that you actually interact and can share parts and share money that might be enough of something that we could actually maybe even scratch yeah. off. This is a main complaint. However, I do 100% remember reading when you give someone a component, like let's say I've researched Saturns, but you haven't, you start with a new outcomes deck. So it's not like you're going to be automatically a tested oh, out Saturn. Interesting. Yeah. From my understanding, maybe, maybe it was a copy, but it's a little bit like uh, when the U.S. got a bunch of V2 missiles from the Germans after World War II, that they kind of had to figure out how to do them. And the manuals were in German. A whole bunch of them. The manuals, exactly. They couldn't figure it out. To wrap up the thoughts on leaving Earth, boy, thank you very much. That was super fun. I can't believe this game has existed since 2015 and I've never heard of it. I'm looking forward to playing this many more times. Me too. This is, I think I gave it a 10 or a 9 on BGG. And honestly, this might be a top 10 game of mine. I think it's easily soloable. It's really fun as like a two or three player experience. 
I don't know if I get up to five that would drag a little bit. There's a lot of downtime in between turns. There is a lot of downtime for sure. But it was just awesome. And the quality and the the way that the game looks and presents itself is beautiful too. try this game. Resounding. Try this game. It was great. I think I'm ultimately going to settle on a 9.9 for the economic concerns that I had. <laughs> That's fair. So, Mark, uh, j- docket point one, just because we are the gaming moguls and we like to waste money on dumb things. I'm debating on buying a custom box for this game. This game does not come with your traditional Euro style game box. The It just comes with like a little cardboard box that's wrapped in a sticker. And it doesn't even hold all the components. So if I ever do, (laughs) tell me that you'd like one because I will buy two of them and it gets cheaper. Yeah. Taking advantage of our uh, information from our print and play episode a couple of weeks ago to place an order for a custom printed box. Practicing what we preach. For sure. So as we did our year end episode, Jake, you and I talked about a few games that we wanted to make a point of playing in 2019. And as I recall, one of the games on your list was Vita Lacerda's The Gallerist. Correct. And I have probably brought that game more game nights and not played it than virtually any other game except for maybe Orleans. And we finally got it played. So we played this game after we played 18 Lilliput at your lovely house on Friday. I mean, dude, what a great game night. 18 Lilliput back to back with the Gallerist. That's one of the best nights of gaming I've had in a long time. It was nice. Yeah, it was great. And we played this until the wee hours of the morn. I got a bunch of texts saying, are you coming home? And I was like, games. Bigger things are happening. (laughs) So a little bit of background. Uh, The Gallerist is one of the three big box games from Eagle Griffin Games, uh, designed by Vita Lacerda and art by the unbelievably awesome Ian O'Toole. And those three games would be The Gallerist, they would be Vinos, and they would be Lisboa. And soon to be Kanban, right? And oh, Jesus. I hope so. Really, really hoping. I own a Stronghold Games copy of Kanban, and eh, it's got the Stronghold Games treatment, shall we say. I am just licking my chops at Eagle Griffin republishing Kanban in the same style as Lisboa and Gallerist, because these games are amazing. The art is beautiful. The production is top-notch. It just looks beautiful spread out on the table, and it just makes me happy just pulling them out and setting them up, much less even playing them. They're so great. Ooh, This one is one of those three games. The Gallerist is a game about collecting and making art more valuable. It's a very easy to understand concept. You discover artists. Those artists produce art. You buy their art. Then you hype their art and you get people to come visit your gallery and see their art. And throughout the course of these activities, that art will become more valuable. And at some point, you'll want to sell that art to make additional money. And then you can use that art to buy more art, which you turn into more money. Ultimately, angling for the end game where there's some works of international renown that come out. And you can earn extra bonus points at the end of the game if you are able to get the highest bid in on those. So it's a very strategic game, has a theme that's very easy for people to understand. Like every other Vidal Lacerda game, it has a lot of moving pieces. Oh, God, uh, yes. Vidal definitely, <laughs> Vidal definitely loves to have a very small number of levers that set a lot of things in motion behind the scenes. So every action that you take, there's only four spaces on the board, each of which has two possible actions. You move to one of those four spaces and you can take one of the two actions there. And by the way, if somebody else was there, you kick them out and they can optionally take those actions as a following action if they want. That's where it gets interesting and difficult because there is a checklist for every one of those actions. Okay, I'm going to buy a piece of art. Now I need to do this. Now I need to do that. Now I need to flip that over. Now I need to put that tile on top of there. And I score that out and I move that out and I gain that amount of money and I pay that and then I do that. 
Okay, your turn. Yes. That's pretty much all of the eight actions are some variant of that many steps. Right. You do this, this happens, this happens, then this happens, then you hit Bill in the face, and then you move on to the next Now, to be fair, a lot of those items are setup items. A lot of those things are, you know, hey, flip over a new art and put a new cube on that, showing what the starting value is. So it's an extra step, but it's a just a setup step. So they're not difficult to understand. You just need to make sure and follow the checklist on that one. I love this game. Yeah, the gallerist is a lot of people's favorites. If you ask people that like Vita Lacerda games, it's tough to get a consensus on what the best game is because Kanban definitely has its uh, fanboys. The Lisboa is extremely popular right now because it's the newest one. Vinos has a lot of people that think it's their favorite game. And the gallerist seems to rise to the top of the pile a lot on that one. I will say I think the gallerist is probably the most accessible of those games. Yeah. So my main complaint, I've only played three of these games, which is Kanban, Lisboa, and The Gallerist. But from where I'm sitting, Gallerist was my favorite by a country mile. Yep. I don't know what it was about it, but everything that happened in the game made sense to me, and it made me think of the implications downline. This game had an incredible amount of long-term planning about what you need to happen. Every single action I was making at the beginning of the turn was to set up for my endgame scoring. Yeah, agreed. And there wasn't random points swinging around. I completely think this one's my favorite. Yeah, I would say that you know if you compare it and contrast it versus... Lisboa, for example, Lisboa definitely is more tactical where you when it comes around to your turn, you have to read where the state of the board is and what's the most efficient thing for you to do at that exact moment. Whereas this game is all about looking down the line and, okay, I need to sell something. So in order to sell it, I need to buy it and I need to hype it and then I need to get the contract to sell it. And to make sure I can get two actions in a row, I'm going to leave some workers behind so I can take some following actions. There's a lot of planning in advance to do it efficiently and to do it well right and the board did change in between when it was your turn when it came all the way back around to me but i had a pretty good idea of what i wanted to do and what i could do it's not like the board space or the board would completely change like honestly whenever i've played lisboa i could close my eyes during other people's turns and just relook at the board because what i thought i was going to do at the end of my turn is absolutely not what i'm going to be doing around the next time yeah that's fair we've only played at higher player counts i've never played lisboa at two maybe it'd be a little less at that but we played both games at four player. We played this at the we played the gallerist at four and it did not have those same issues, in my honest opinion. I would also say that there is a higher degree of player interaction in the gallerist than there is in Lisboa, because you're interacting a lot in this game with all the kickout actions and displacing people and leaving workers behind and fighting for different discovering different pieces of art and promoting art like you and I, Jake, both bought into a certain artist. So we're both working together to increase the value of that artist's works. That's a thing. There's an area control aspect of the end game scoring where you're trying to get spots claimed before other people. There's an incredible amount of interaction in this game. I completely agree. And we do say that these actions are pretty complicated, but they're not that bad compared to other ones. They all kind of make sense on what you're doing. They may have a few subsets, but towards the end of the game, I had no issues with any of the mechanisms whatsoever. Hell, even after the first three or four turns, I had no issues with any of the things. We definitely weren't playing optimally, but I just felt it was so much more able to get into it. And I was able to actually enjoy the meaty insides, the gooey center of this game faster than I was able to enjoy it with both Kanban and Lisboa. So that's why it's clearly my favorite. Yeah, having played Kanban a number of times, there's some I like Kanban, but there's some things in there that even to this day, I don't really understand. Like thematically, they don't really make sense. Like 
when you're promoting the auto parts at the end of the game into car- tested cars, that's never really gotten square in my brain. Whereas everything in the gallerist makes sense. Even the little sub actions you do make sense. I do this because, okay, I did that. So his fame gets higher. So I move the fame token up and I get some money because I threw a party to get him there. Got it. And I get a little more influence because of that. Got it. And because people are in my gallery, I get more money. Got it. That all made sense. So thematically, I think it really helps the play as well. And maybe that's just due to the fact that at the end, all you want to do is make money. There's not seven different ways to get victory points, which I know money can just be extracted to victory points. Oh, that's an interesting point. Yeah. But you're just making money and everything has a value. Everything has a cost. Everything has a value. You're just trying to figure out the best way to maximize your ROI for everything you've done, whether that be time or anything. I hadn't noticed that until you brought up that point, but some of the other games we had played are a bit point salady with end game goals and so forth, where, yeah, this one does really just boil down into money. Right. And my capitalistic brain did really well. I did very weirdly well at this game. I really like the gallerist. <laughs> I actually added it to my wish list of games that I'd like to own, even though you own the beautiful deluxified version of it. Well, and I think this one being more accessible is one that we all own some heavy games that it's somewhat pointless to own multiple copies inside our group. But I think it's accessible enough that it has a little broader appeal. And you could play this with people that like more medium weight Euro games. Right. You might need to make sure to really point out to there's this wonderful player that comes in the game and really use that as almost their ticket to the game. And really explain every single part of that because the actual sheet is it's wonderful. It explains everything you'll need. But if you were to just highlight that heavily, they would absolutely be able to play the game. I agree with you. And this is a heavyweight game. It, it wasn't super heavy. Obviously, we played heavier things. It was a beefy game. I think this clock's in just over four on the BGG scale. I don't remember exactly. But, Does it? But it Let's is check. It is a pretty heavyweight game. And yeah, the sheet that you get is really a I'd call it a menu or a recipe almost for what you have to do on the turn. So It's easy to understand. Hey, I have this piece of art. I have to hype it. So I'm going to move over to that section and do the promotion thing. So to do the promotion, I look at my recipe. I do this, then this, then this, then this, and this. Good. Done. I did it. I think it's pretty easy to understand. Also, this game does not overstay its welcome. No, it's not very long. Like it's over quicker than you think it's going to be. And yeah, I just looked up on BGG. It's a 4.28. And I know the BGG weight scale has some issues. But it's the best thing we have. And this thing is a 4.25 or 4.28 out of five. That's up there. It plays light. Yes, I agree. But yet at the same time, you're you're immediately heading into the deeper part of the game, which is the strategy, which is what I like out of a game. Right. To play it well and efficiently and score high, you definitely need to master a fairly difficult strategy. And I did not do that. You tried your best. Can you compliment me on my teach? You did an excellent teach. You did a good job with it, which is also one that I don't think you prepped it earlier that week. So it was an oh. almost cold teach and you did a great job. Just about. Well, it's funny. So it took me I'm a looking second. Around I, towards I pulled the it open. I'm like, oh, I remember uh-oh. this. Yeah, I looked I at that. And I was like, uh-oh. no, Mark, I really want to play this game. Oh, no. <laughs> but as soon as I got into it, I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember how this works. OK, it's easy. Yeah. So I looked around the board at the end of the game. And so you have four slots for art. And the way that it actually fits on the the player placard area is really beautiful. They actually look like you're making a little gallery. And so I look around and I look to my board. I have four pieces of art. And I look to uh, Vinny's. He has three, I think, at game end. John had a couple. And I think you had one piece of art in your gallery at game end. I had none in my gallery at game end. You had none. I had sold three. So I got no scoring from that. Mistakes were made. (laughs) Yeah, I I looked at him like, okay, cool. The goal is to have a lot of art at the end of the game because it's worth values. Okay, cool. Okay, Vinny has some. John has some. Oh, Mark's nothing. Mark closed his doors. 
in an everything must go sale. Where I where I blew it was I spent too much effort getting my pieces, my fewer pieces of art promoted really high rather than having a bunch of piece of art and having them sort of mid price. So a bunch of mid price pieces of art definitely are better than having a couple of really, really famous guys. So, but I, yeah. I, I, oh, well. I ate upon your, uh, your breadcrumbs and had a very good ride because I had the second piece of art by the wonderful artist that you made the best in oh, the yeah. game. So. Yeah, I, I definitely Thanks, did Mark. the heavy lifting for you on that one. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, bring this game anytime. I officially have. One of my favorite Vital Assertas, and this is a very good game for me. I don't rate other people's games that I don't own on BGG. That may change this year, but I would give this one an eight or a nine. So excellent. Yeah. The Gallerist, if you are looking for something a little heavier and beautiful and has some table presence and is a fairly easy teach, but just dripping with theme, can't recommend The Gallerist enough. So, boy, we apparently just did a whole episode where we loved everything except for Magblast. Right. Get out of here, Magblast. We hate you. We thought it'd be a good contrast from the co-ops where we were like, Kind of lukewarm on everything. Let's talk about some games we love. Just a quick wrap up uh, and toss back to our co-op episode last week. Had some interesting conversations in the past couple of days about people that, you know, hey, you should really try this. You should really try that. And you should really try that. And I should probably mention that of the games we mentioned that we like, not many of those would be in our top 50. Yeah, it's interesting. So we touched on it a bit last episode, but we don't seek out these games, the co-op games specifically. So we thought it'd be interesting to see the ones that have actually made it to our collection and why. But yeah, I am completely unaware of the entire co-op games world. Yeah, exactly. A lot of these are people are pointing out, hey, have you played the Underground Railroad? We're like, no, we really don't seek out co-op games. So <laughs> yeah. no, completely unaware. But I will say, though, the one that is an exception to all of that is I would absolutely put the Grizzle in my top 20. No problem. Absolutely. And as Mark is saying, too, feel free to reach out to us. We love to talk to people. I'd love to hear all the reasons we're wrong. Great discussions about that and feedback on this episode as well. Always. All right. Well, that sounds good, Mark. Hope you have a good rest of your night. I do. Yeah. You too as well, Jake. That was a lot of fun. And uh, geez, I hope we have a week of gaming this week like we did last week. That was a killer. Heck yeah. All right. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Kloppenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at Gaming Moguls. Or reach us via email, jake at gamingmoguls.com or mark at gamingmoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls Podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.